Okay, so here we are at the beginning of the book of Esther. The year is 483 BC, and it is the third year of the reign of King Ahas... Here we go. Ahasuerus. I've been trying to say this all week. Uh, King of the Persian Empire. Now, to orientate ourselves a little bit, if you were here with us uh, last year when we looked at Nehemiah, you might remember that that book began with... Uh, began with Nehemiah asking King Artaxerxes uh, for permission to go to Jerusalem to repair the, temp- uh, the city walls. Well, in Esther's day, that, that's not happened yet. Okay? We're about 30 years before um, Nehemiah went to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is actually the son of King Ahasuerus, uh, the king that we're thinking about today. So although the book of Esther in our Bibles is after, you might notice, the the book of Nehemiah. It actually, chronologically, it falls before Nehemiah. So in Bible Bible history, we're actually sitting somewhere between the... somewhere in the middle of the temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem and the walls in Jerusalem being rebuilt, somewhere in in, in the middle of that time. But not... for for us in, in Esther, none of the... Uh, that the direct action is actually happening in Jerusalem. We are fully in the, the city of Susa, which is one of the capital cities of the vast Persian Empire. And right from the beginning of the account, we are plunged into the world of King Ahasuerus. And nowadays, he's more commonly known as King Xerxes I, ruler of the Persian Empire at its height of power and wealth. Three times in the first two verses we're told that it's his kingdom. And although we, we might be tempted to skip onto the later exciting bit, the, the sort of twists of what happens in the, in, in the chapter, it is well worth us spending time uh, soaking in this kingdom that he's in. Because this is the world that we are going to be in for the next few months in Esther as we work our way through the book. So let's look first at the, the glory of the king. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. You might remember when we looked at Nehemiah that the Persian Empire was enormous. It was, it was the most powerful kingdom there had been ever up until that point in history. Several times through the Book of Esther, we'll be reminded that it covers 127 provinces. They are big on telling us how big it is. Those provinces stretch from what we know today as Pakistan, uh, over in the east, to the edges of Greece in the west, and as far south as Sudan. It was a huge kingdom. History tells us as well that Ahasuerus had already quashed a rebellion in Egypt in his second year on his throne, and another one shortly afterwards in in Babylon. But that his main aim, his focus, was to attack and conquer Greece, which he he eventually attempted at 480 BC, which is the sixth year of his reign, a few years after what we're looking at today. Because he'd been furious, furious that they had held off his father Darius's armies a decade earlier and he'd vowed to conquer them. But here in chapter 1, we find him in Susa, one of the capital cities, throwing a massive party for delegates, 
officials and his army from every province of the kingdom. It's quite probable that this feasting was, this, in the start of chapter one, it was the, it's part of his warm-up campaign, rallying his troops and officials, winning them over, preparing them for war. And let's just look at what this, this feast was. An incredible, lavish, opulent event, a series or a series of events that lasts for six months. This is not your local MP doing your door-to-door knock in the build-up to a local election, maybe the week before. This is, everything about this exudes power and wealth and might and excess. I'll read the first few verses again uh, from, from verse 3 and just, just try and imagine uh, what it might have been like. I've got a picture here of what people think Susa looked like uh, or part of Susa. So just try and picture this, like, like, almost like a film, him zooming in on the city. Okay. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and all the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So that's the whole of that region that we just looked at on the map. All there, the main people there. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and velvet hangings, fastened with, with cords of fine linen and, and purple, uh, fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars. It took me six months to get our curtains to stay up. Okay, marble pillars. Imagine that. And also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of, of porphyry, which is a kind of red stone. Marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. This is like an elaborate marble um, mosaic floor. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was, la- royal wine was lavished. Not Aldi's finest. Royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was to this edict. There is no compulsion. That doesn't mean you're not, there's no compulsion to drink. In, in those days, the usual custom was to drink only when the king drank. So when the king raised his goblet, people could drink. This is his way of saying you can drink whenever you want. So this is not, you've got to hold back, this is knock yourself out kind of stuff. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So that possibly just indicates just how many people were there. There's an overflow party for, for the queen. Power, wealth, luxury, everything that is desired in the world. These verses are dripping with it. And it's all for what? Well... All for the glory of the king. No one else. He's not just being generous for the sake of it. This is all about him. All the feasting, all the drinking, the elaborate buildings, the furnishings, everything is pointing to him. We look again at verse 4. While he shared the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. 
six months of a, an all-expenses-paid self-promotion campaign ending with a week-long feast. Now, I know that we're a, a long way in time from 5th century BC Persia. But how often do we see all these things at the center of what people chase after in the world even today? Wealth, power, status, hedonism. The, the, king of, the kingdom of Persia is like, is like a mirror here, reflecting what every kingdom before Anna and since has held in, in high esteem. And right at the center of the kingdom is the king, and right at the center of the king is pride. But the shock of the passage, sorry, that was the glory of the king, the shock of the passage comes next, because despite everything on the surface, everything on the surface, this all-powerful king, the king with everything in the world, is limited. But we needed verses 1 to 9 to understand the craziness of, about, of what is going to happen next. Okay. The humiliation of the king. Let's just try to keep picturing this together. Six months of celebration. Political wrangling, gathering together his troops from all regions of his empire. Buttering them up to his own power, his impressiveness, building them up for the attack on Greece that has been simmering in his heart for years. Power, money, wealth. This is who you serve. You serve me, the great king Ahasuerus. You're under my rule. And then the feast of feasts for seven days, a whole week. This is what you get in my kingdom. And then the final day, the creme de la creme, verse 10. When the cart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded uh, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown. But a nice guy he was. Just like everything else, it's all about him. He, he doesn't just send one eunuch, he sends seven eunuchs. There's a big display of his power. And by getting them to look at queen, the queen's beauty, it's not, nothing to do with respecting her, of course. It's to show his power. Look at the king you serve, the king with the most beautiful wife in the world. Six months, seven days, and then to top everything off, the stunning beauty of the queen. That's the trajectory. But the queen said, no, not today. Can you imagine being in that room? That the whispers of the eunuchs, as they, like, who's going to tell him? That the silence, the, the awkward glances from the people in there, maybe not even daring to look at the king, just looking at their feet. We don't know why she refused, we're not told. Maybe she didn't want to turn down her own guests that she was busy hosting. Maybe the king had annoyed her probably understandably didn't want to get ogled by the king and all the people in his court. Maybe this was just a straw that broke the camel's back. One request too much. Any of those reasons could be valid, but we don't know. We're not told. So we, we could think about it, but it's really it's not important. What's important, what the writer wants us to know, is that she did refuse. 
And what we're meant to see is the fallout afterwards. The tsunami that it creates in every direction of the kingdom. Because the all-powerful king is utterly humiliated. And he rages, doesn't he? Uh, verse 12. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. We're meant to see that the total irony of the situation in contrast with verses 1 to 9. For all the wealth, the power, the pomp he has, for all the fear that he instills in people, he has no power whatsoever over the heart of his wife. The kingdom promises so much, but at its very heart, the person at its very heart just can't deliver. Now, I want to be careful here because we have to hold the right balance. It is, in a very real and, and very terrible way, the king does hold great power. And that's critical for our understanding of, of the, the rest of the book, the danger that is presented in the rest of the book. He was known in, through history as a tyrant. There's other historical records that would, would back that up. Records of him doing awful things to people who he felt had betrayed him. Terrible things. This is a powerful and dangerous king. But he's not an all-powerful king. He might, he might think he is. He might want other people to think he is, but he's not. The extent of his power has boundaries. In fact, I think we're meant to see that this is almost laughable. The whole scene is so ironic. The queen refuses to come, so the king defers to his advisors. So by, by the way, at no point in the whole book of Esther does the king make his own decision. He's always, this powerful king is always asking other people what he should do. So he says in verse 15, according to the law, what is to be, queen, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of, queen, of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? So they have this, this discussion and, and Mamukan in particular speaks up. But just glance down to verse 19, because he says, let it be written among the laws of the Persians and Medes, so that it may not be repealed. Which shows that although the king asked what's written in the law in verse 15, there was nothing written in the law. They're making the law up as they go along. There was no law about it in the first place. They're just writing the rules to suit their own situation writing the rules because she offended his pride. Writing the rules to stop the potential new trend set by Vashti, the royal influencer. And, and yeah, we can imagine that there might be some, some people sort of copying what happens, saying no to their husbands. But it, the, whole, the whole account is so exaggerated, isn't it? Verse 16 says, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials, all the peoples in all the provinces. Verse 17, the queen's behavior will be made known to all women. Verse 18, uh, this very day the noble women of Persia and Media will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Like, come on, that's, it's not going to happen everywhere. It's not the whole kingdom. But isn't that just typical of how all of us could react when we feel humiliated or wronged. 
Do we know that temptation to exaggerate the truth, to wrestle back control or get our own way? So the unrepealable uh, law is passed. Never again can Queen Vashti come before the king. She'll be replaced by another queen, presumably and importantly one who won't defy the king. And every man should be master in his own household. But there again, there's laughable irony. How does the king, how is he going to police every household in the whole empire? It's impossible. But it's even more ironic when we see that he can't even police his own household. He can't command his own wife to come. We were meant to look at this and laugh. It's ridiculous. But see how the, the effect trickles from the, from the palace into every household. It goes from the king to the advisors to every house. It's what power and pride does to all of us in this worldly kingdom in which we live. From the very top down to the high and low alike. Chasing after power, grappling for control. I think if we're honest, we, we know that temptation to change or exaggerate the facts a bit, to twist things to our advantage. Changing the rules when we don't get our way. Flying into a rage over the smallest of things when we feel like we've been wronged by someone else. That we might not have the wealth and power of Ahasuerus, but we want to be the kings of our own little kingdoms. The, the kingdom of pride is still one that, that we all live in. I was, in, uh, I was in school with work this week and uh, I was trying to oversee a, a small football match between years five and six. And it was, it's incredible the, the amount that people can change the laws of time and space just to get what they want. Like everybody, for some reason, everybody wanted to be in goal. Um, so I, I kind of decided to let's have two minutes each. But if, for the kids that weren't in goal, it was like... It's my turn, it's my turn. It's like they'd only told me 10 seconds earlier. I'll tell you after two minutes, don't worry. You just enjoy yourselves. And then as soon as they're in goal, and it was time for someone else, it's like, oh, I've not touched the ball yet. It's like, it's, they would twist the, the very rules that they wanted to apply to other people. They would twist them when it was their turn. Grappling for control. In a very small way, but it's just in all of us. So that's... It's all very interesting, but where on earth is God in chapter 1? Morris showed us last week that God's not mentioned in the entire book. But we haven't even got God's people mentioned in chapter 1. So is it just interesting background information? Well, yes and no. On the one hand, it is really helpful for us to see the power and the pride of the king. That is going to be really important later on in the book to know the danger that his fury presents. It's helpful to understand how women are seen by the culture and also how the king and his court want him to have a quiet and passive king, uh, queen. It's also helpful for us to see how once laws are passed in the empire, they can't be revoked. That's going to come up again in the story. So that's helpful and interesting, but, but more than that, I think chapter one shows us something really jaw-dropping about the real king who reigns. 
The king who's not mentioned at all, but is quietly and powerfully at work through the whole scene. So let's finally look at the true glory of the true king. Something that we might not appreciate as we work our way through the first, two, uh, first few chapters of Esther is the amount of time that they cover. Chapter 1 that we looked at tonight is in the third year of, uh, of the king's reign. And then it's not until the seventh year that Esther is made queen in chapter 2, after he's been to Greece and back. And then in chapter 3, when, when Haman puts, his, uh, puts in place his plot, that's the twelfth year of the king's reign. So the, the stuff that we're covering tonight is nine years before any of that plot comes to pass. Nine years. It's nearly a decade, but the, the wheels are in motion. Queen Vashti has been removed, making way for a different queen. God might not be mentioned in Esther. God's people might not even be mentioned in Esther 1. But quietly... The Lord is at work through the unfolding events. God will see to it. Providence, that's what we were thinking about last week. Here, in the scope of the whole story, we see that God is seeing to it before anybody else realizes what is going on. I think it's crucial to understanding the chapter and also massively encouraging for how we deal with events in our own lives right here and now. But nobody, nobody in the king's palace that day is looking at the events unfolding and saying, oh, this must be the Lord God of Israel just sorting out things so that there can be a new, king in, a new queen in the future. Nobody's doing that at all. The king's fuming over his humiliation. The advisors are frantically trying to appease the king and hold on to their own personal power, whether that's in the kingdom or in their own households. But also... Neither are the Jews aware of what's going on. First we hear about the, the Jewish people is in chapter 2, three or four years later, when the, when the young women are being rounded up. So presumably in chapter 1, life is plodding on as normal for the Jewish people under the empire. You know, there might be some murmurings of a ruckus at the palace. Maybe news did trickle out about the queen, the queen swiftly followed by the new law that's been passed for every household. We're not told that, but also there's, there's no prophet here announcing that this, is the, that this is paving the way for something to happen. This is just normal life in the empire. Normal life in a hard world. Nobody in the empire had a clue about the storm that was coming for the Jews a decade later. But God knew. God knew the proud heart of the king and how he always deferred to his advisors for his next move. God knew the heart of Haman. Perhaps it was already hardened and bent on his own advancement through the court. Haman's nowhere to be seen in chapter 1. He doesn't come to power for another few years. But God knew and he was seen to it. He was seen to it not only when the queen decided that enough was enough and refused to come, but even before that, the, in the king's celebration of his own glory, the Lord was remarkably using the king's proud heart to set in motion the events that would mean that the king's queen was replaced and the Lord's chosen 
saving queen could be lifted up. That should lead us to great awe and great comfort. Even through the most powerful man in the known world at that time, through the proud actions of a king consumed with his own glory, the true king over all the nations and all time is quietly revealing his glory by carefully putting in place the means to save his people from the future recklessness of the same proud king. But that's how the Lord works. He's never on the back foot responding to evil, but ruling and reigning over all nations. Even using the proud and wicked hearts and deeds of people who don't believe in him. Using them to bring about his plans of salvation. 450 years later, God used the pride of Caesar Augustus to order a census to bring Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. He used the jealousy of Herod to drive Joseph and Mary into Egypt. And he used the potential revenge of Herod's son to lead them to return to a quiet life in rural uh, rural Nazareth. And in doing so, the prophecies could be fulfilled. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt, and was known as a Nazarene. God's sovereign hand at work through the proud and wicked hearts of people who had no time for him whatsoever. So let us take comfort in this. If we learn anything from chapter 1 of Esther, let us see that the Lord is always intricately intricately at work for the good of his kingdom and displaying his glory even through the wicked intentions of others. There will be storms that hit us throughout our life, personally and as a church. Storms that we never saw coming in, in a million years, but they will come. But they will not be a surprise to God. We can mourn the evil that is done in the world. We must, I think, mourn the evil that is done in the world. And I I think it's right that we pray for the Lord to intervene and prevent it, to bring comfort to those who are going through it. But at the same time, we can hold in balance the same truths and we can take a deep, deep comfort in, in knowing that the sovereign Lord providentially rules. Nothing is spinning out of control. Nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing derails his plans. Unlike King Ahasuerus, king of the world, the Lord doesn't rage and grasp hold of power, but shows the riches of his glory and his humiliation. Rather than casting out his disobedient people out of his presence forever, he the Lord Jesus was cast out so that he could gather together a kingdom of people which he calls his bride, his church so he could draw them into his presence forever and ever. He is powerfully at work and he will see to it that that happens. Let's pray. Lord God, we We know that you're not mentioned in Esther, but it is awesome to see that you are moving the events of time uh, to make a path for your people to be saved. 
you're not mentioned here, but even through the wicked deeds of, of the king, of, through his pride and his rage, you are paving the way to, to raise up um, a queen that would, would save your people. And Lord, it is a great comfort to see that that is the way that you work through history. There is nothing that is spinning out of control, Lord. You are a sovereign God. You hold all things in your hands. And Lord, we, we long for evil to be, to, done, to be done away with. We, we long for, for wars to cease and... and uh, the pride that we see on display in, in some of the rulers of the world to be, to be quashed. But Lord, we know that there is pride still raging at, uh, in, in our own hearts, maybe in different ways on smaller scales, but it's still there raging. And despite our sin, and despite terrible things that happen in the world, you are there at work, and you have raised up your Saviour, not to cast us out, but to, to bring us in as your people. Lord, we, we want to worship you for that. We don't understand all of these things, but we, we thank you that in our limitations we can trust you, the God of all space and time. Uh, we can trust you to be holding all things and, and bringing your kingdom of people home safely to you. Amen.